0: I have talked to a number of folks about this over the last few years, and everybody tells me, you know, sort of just keep your seatbelt on because we're getting close to having something that really will make a major difference.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Last week, the FDA approved an oral formulation of the drug Adaravone for the treatment of ALS. It was a key step in optimizing current treatments as the decision will allow for greater ease of use while also making Adarabone accessible to more people. As regular listeners are aware, optimizing current treatments and care is one of the keys to making ALS a livable disease, while researchers continue to look for ways to cure and prevent ALS. And that speaks to another key, finding new treatments and making them available and accessible to people who need them. That's why a looming FDA decision on whether to approve AMX 35 for use is so important, a decision that is expected sometime in June. And given that approval is not guaranteed, the community still has time to tell FDA that people with ALS deserve access to safe and effective treatments now. For more on that, go to als.org emailthefda email the FDA. That's als.org email hyphen the hyphen FDA. But all of this points to the promise of ALS research. The focus of this week's episode is we continue to celebrate ALS Awareness Month. Since its inception, the ALS Association has committed a little more than $200 million to research around the world. $120 million of that commitment has come since the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. In fact, everybody who took the Ice Bucket Challenge played a role in bringing AMX 35 to the brink of approval, as it was one of the first drugs funded with Ice Bucket Challenge money. A few weeks ago, when we talked to Dr. Matthew Kiernan, the recipient of the 2022 Sheila Essie Award for ALS Research, we talked about the increase in interest in brain research since Dr. Kiernan first entered the field. The same could be said about interest in ALS research in recent years, something that is reflected in the fact that recipients of funding from the Lawrence and Isabel Barnett Drug Development Program see a six-fold increase in follow-on funding from pharmaceutical companies and venture capitalists. It's also reflected in the fact that federal funding for ALS research increases every year. And it's reflected in the fact that programs like the Milton Sefenowitz Postdoctoral Fellowship Program encourages new entrants into the field of research. More than 40 fellows have received funding from that program since 2015, and over 70% continue their research in ALS. And that increased interest in ALS research is paying off. Our funding of large-scale gene sequencing initiatives, such as Project Mine, has yielded more than 40 genes that have been linked to ALS. That means 40 targets to go after for drug development. And we continue to fund clinical trials for diverse therapeutic strategies, such as Tofersin, copper ATSM, Tregs, and various approaches such as small molecules, gene therapies, and cell therapies. We also invest in large-scale infrastructure projects, such as supporting NEALS, which is the largest clinical trial consortium for ALS. That means our funding touches every clinical trial that is conducted through NEALS within the United States. We also recently funded the Answer ALS Data Portal, which is the world's largest open omics database of over 1,200 people with ALS. And all of this matters because in order to create a world without ALS, it's going to take researchers all over the world working together to find treatments and ultimately ways to cure and prevent ALS. My guest this week is Jim Essie, a business executive who sits on the board of directors of the American Brain Foundation. The Essie family has long been a leader in the ALS community, having established the Sheila Essie Award for ALS research in 1996. Uh, Well, Jim, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. Hey, so glad to be here with you, Jim. It's an important topic. You know, uh, research is so critical to the work of making ALS livable and, of course, ultimately finding treatments and and cures for the disease. Before we get to that, though, for folks listening at home who who may not be familiar with your family's work with the fight, can you just give us a quick introduction uh, into your family's connection to the disease and how you got involved in the fight?
0: Yeah, sure. My mom, uh, Sheila, was diagnosed with ALS in 1994. And at the time, back in 94, there was really very little known about the disease. There wasn't a lot of services el- available for people who uh, were stricken with this horrible malady. They didn't really know how to, had nothing to give for treatment. And so my dad, Richard S.C., sort of got involved and helped to form what is now the uh, Golden Gate chapter of uh, ALS the Golden West chapter I guess it's now called it's been called about four different uh, names uh, throughout uh, its lifetime
1: Sure uh, but uh,
0: the, its its purpose was uh, twofold one to uh provide services uh, for the families of those uh, people with uh, ALS and also to help advance uh, research for uh, treatment uh, and cure and um as my dad sort of got into this uh, with uh, ALSA, he uh, realized that there weren't a lot of researchers who were jumping in to do ALS research. It was a sort of unknown known disease. There wasn't a lot of publicity about it. And he thought if one could establish an award for a top researcher on an annual basis, that might spur interest among other researchers to sort of get involved, maybe use those ideas that they uh, learned from a particular researcher and add on to those and come up with even better treatment or uh, cure options. And so he formed, uh, in my mom's honor, the uh, Sheila Essie Award for ALS research, and we're pleased that every year we uh, donate uh, $50,000 to support this award and have had uh, some incredible recipients of this award over the years. uh, And I think have helped stimulate thinking on the best ways to uh, approach uh, the challenges to uh, come up with a cure.
1: Well, and we had the great honor here on Connecting ALS to talk to uh, Dr. Matthew Kiernan, the the recipient of the 2022 SE Prize. And so folks who may have missed that episode, uh, please go back and hear from Dr. Kiernan about his great research. Jim, the prize, I believe, was first awarded in 1996, um, so that's 26 years ago. That's right. What have you seen from your vantage point that makes research into ALS in 2022? How does it look different from how it looked in 1996?
0: Well, I wasn't as as close to it in 96, frankly, as I am now. Um, I I will say that uh, sort of anecdotally, it seems like there is more attention to the disease, which I think is a great thing. As you may know, uh, Jeremy, I sit on the board, in fact, I'm the treasurer of the American Brain Foundation, uh, which is sort of an omnibus organization dealing with all of the uh, sort of uh, horrible brain diseases that are out there. But our thought is that if you can cure one, you can cure many. And we're really trying to draw connections between uh, what uh, some of the treatments that come up for one disease to see if in fact, those same methodologies couldn't uh, help in others. And so I personally am sort of inspired by the fact that people are taking ALS and trying to draw some connections with some other diseases. And um, I'm hopeful that there may be some good advancements. I have talked to a number of folks about this over the last few years, and everybody tells me, you know, sort of just keep your seatbelt on because uh, we're getting close to having something that really will make a major difference. But the unfortunate thing to say for those people who right now are living with ALS is that there still is really nothing uh, that we could prescribe to them today that would either make a major difference in the acceleration of the disease or cure them of it. And uh, I think that's what we all are hoping will happen in the near term.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why you hear so many calls for urgency, greater urgency, uh, the, the, certainly meeting the urgency of the moment, but also how do we accelerate that and inject even more into the search. Uh, you know, you talk about collaboration, and I think back to something that Dr. Kiernan discussed about how we know so much more about the brain the physiology of the brain and how it works than we did certainly when he got into the field back in, you know, and certainly when the SE Prize was first awarded. But I want to dig in on this this issue of collaboration. How do we get organizations or researchers that are looking in what could be seen as siloed approaches to research and get people to work outside of silos or across silos, or I'm I'm mangling the metaphor, but how do you encourage that type of collaboration that you're talking about?
0: Well, I mean, I think we have a couple of avenues where that could could occur. Uh, The first, frankly, is at the AAN uh, annual uh, meeting and convention. And I've been pushing for this a long time, uh, as have my friends at uh, Potamkin, the Potamkin family. They also give an award for Alzheimer's uh, similar to our awards. So sort of the top researchers in both of those areas. And the, the, the winners of each of our prizes have a relatively small meeting room where they can present their findings uh, to those people who can squeeze into that room something like three or 400 of the over 8,000 people who have an opportunity to be able to go to this incredible AAN convention every year. And one of the thoughts we had was if we could give greater exposure to the research of both of these key winners. Uh, very important prizes to a much larger audience that people may see connections right there, the types of uh, information they see. So I think we have collaboration in two ways. The first way for, to, to sort of build on collaboration is to let everybody who's focusing on a particular disease know about all of the advances that are made in that particular disease. Because even though you're saying siloed, meaning disease by disease my understanding is that there is there are silos in even the way people are approaching a particular disease. Some may sure. be looking at it genetically, some may be looking at it, you know, what the causality is. And if we can get all of that information out so people can see it, the thought is maybe there could be some connections that they could make between what others have discovered and what they've discovered and how they can sort of synergistically move forward. So I think Within the silo, it's important to have a lot of collaboration. And then separate from that, I think we need sort of some more generalists, if you will, who yeah. can overview the, the various discoveries that are being made across brain disease and see some similarities and suggest some possible ways to move forward. You know, ABF uh, last year initiated an LBD sort of uh, symposium. And uh, with that, we awarded a $3 million grant to move forward on discovering the LBD. And what's very interesting in Louis about dementia is that it involves a whole bunch of different symptoms, different brain-related symptoms. And the thought was, if we can move forward there and understand symptoms that exist there, that maybe attacks three or four different types of diseases of the brain, the information that we glean there will be helpful for each one of those areas. And so I think more of that kind of collaborative grant approach could also help build those connections you were talking about from the different uh, aspects of brain disease to sort of try to find out similarities and move towards treatments or cures that could be cross-brain, if you will, and uh, and help uh, more uh, than just one particular disease.
1: You talked about how people have been telling you, stay tuned, we're close, Something we're close to change, we're close to something meaningful. What gives you hope, aside from very, very, very brilliant people who are up to their elbows in this stuff, but what gives you hope that that is in fact where we are and that the, we're getting closer to that horizon that always seems in the distance?
0: Right, I mean, blind faith maybe. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right that one of the, big reasons one can be hopeful is that some very, very smart people are putting attention to it and saying based on their, you know, decades of work, they feel they're closer now than they've ever been. Is some of that aspirational? Maybe. But you know what? Sometimes you need to have researchers have that that expectation that they're that close to success because that drives them. Imagine working on something year after year after year and still not solving that problem right i mean i get upset when i do wordle if i can't you know figure it out in you know 3 tries and if i were doing this every single year working on that same thing and not getting success i could get demotivated but if i felt that I could see as I was making those, you know, just slight advances that they were really getting me towards, I think some were really close. That would motivate me to keep going further along as well. And so I think, you know, part of that are researchers who are looking for grasping at straws, maybe to get themselves motivated enough to keep doing the good work. And I think Some of all of those efforts are now starting to pay off from what they're saying. And I wish we had more concrete examples that we could say, well, you know, we've seen this in mice and wow, it's amazing what's happened. I think there have been some discoveries sort of maybe that have said some things that you're seeing it in mice, but no one has yet been jumping up and down and saying, okay, eureka moment, here we have it. But I think people... Are all encouraged to the point where they're amping up their efforts, putting more, you know, sort of research attention and resources behind it because they think they're, you know, sort of on the cusp of making something
1: happen. Yeah, and I, I'm curious, you know, the, how frequently that eureka moment is something that, without the context of that decades of research, would seem like an incremental discovery. But with what we know and what we've built up, and the collaborations, what would otherwise seem that insignificant finding becomes the eureka moment. And uh, you know, in five years ago, it would have been small, but now we have more pieces of the puzzle. I'm, I'm just fascinated by the way that eureka gets defined.
0: I think you're right, and I, you know, I, I've now had the privilege of being at a number of neurological conferences and. I mean I'm a total layman and so you know they're talking way over my head but you know being a businessman I try to understand you know to get the core of uh, juicy bits out so that I can sort of participate in, and add something to the conversation right. what I've been noticing is that that there is this sort of murmur that's going on and people are starting to talk about yeah did you see that what happened with this research and how that had an impact and what that could possibly mean and so i'm hearing more of that now than i think definitely than i'm sure my dad heard in 96 but even five years ago in these conversations so i think we're getting close and i just think i think it's a question of more dollars behind it and you know more more energy and even getting more and more people, which is why we continue to do this SE award every year to get more and more people excited and interested in pushing forward and coming up with something that others uh, so far have not been able to make happen.
1: And then with that momentum, you hope for an exponential growth, and it's not 20 more years. What took 20 years then takes five. Or, right. or less, right? Because you have so much more resources, both brain power resources and financial resources behind it, uh, that you really c- hope that that acceleration of discovery happens. Jim, those are all the questions I had for you before I let you go. Any other thoughts about the legacy of the SE Prize and the state of ALS research today and into the future?
0: Well, I can say my sister Tina and I, uh, you know, are, are committed to following along in you know, sort of the initiatives that my parents started. Uh, my dad was, uh, I, I'm, I'm proud to be following him on the ABF board. He was on the ABF board before I was and felt that, you know, it's sort of our family should be giving back because, uh, uh, you know, sort of the ALS community has been so good to us. They were so supportive to my mom during the 10 years that she battled the disease, which is a long time for people with ALS. It's normally a much less uh, unfortunate for that person, less lifespan um, but she was uh, treated by a number of uh, really special folks and uh, we wanted to sort of make a difference and give back i think generally for als research i think uh, you know as i said i think it's at a tipping point i think for everybody out there i'd like to thank them for the incredible hard work and late nights i mean these researchers they're in the labs just hours and hours a day and sometimes if they see something they're excited about they're there on the weekends saying, okay, well, let's see if we could get closer to that. And, I mean, the people can stay motivated and do this you know, sort of bigger than themselves project. If they're sure. just trying to make a major difference in the world, I think it's just so selfless of them. And so I really would like, I think on behalf of my entire family, just thank them for what they've done so far to advance us as close as we've gotten. And for what I hope will be the uh, soon announcement of some you know, major uh, movement in uh, treatment and, and hopefully getting close to that evasive cure that we are all hoping for it, uh, at some point.
1: Well, selfless is the right word for it. And I uh, want to thank you for your selflessness in giving us your time this week and all that you do for the fight against ALS. Uh, Jim Essie, thanks for being with us this week.
0: Hey, my pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on.
1: I want to thank my guest this week, Jim Essie, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you liked this week's episode, share it with a friend. And please find time to rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.